From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up. And that's the real reason why I think that Senator Josh Hawley needs to resign, why Senator Ted Cruz needs to resign, along with many others. That was, they will do it again. That was Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez demanding once again the resignations of Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, repeating her claim that they were responsible for the Capitol riot on January the 6th. I say enough of her babbling nonsense, and I'm going to talk about it later here on Washington Watch. Also, the Democratic leadership is attempting to turn the Capitol, I believe, into an armed fortress. They criticized former President Trump when he placed a temporary fence around the White House during the Democratic-tolerated, if not inspired, riots last summer. But will will Republicans allow this to happen? Also, 10 senators uh, met with President Biden yesterday to discuss a compromise on another proposed coronavirus relief bill. This one with a price tag of almost $2 trillion. Will it happen? Should it happen? We'll talk about it with Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton in just a moment. And we've discussed the 2020 census and what that could mean for congressional redistricting. Will Republicans or Democrats have the advantage? David Wasserman with the Cook Political Report is here with the answer later on Washington Watch. And as I mentioned yesterday, this is Black History Month. And the theme of this year is the black family. Now that is something we can talk about it and talk about it we will with the former mayor of Cincinnati and now senior fellow for human rights and constitutional governance. That is Ken Blackwell joins me later for that conversation. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Again, mark your calendars February the 10th. That's Wednesday, a week, uh, almost a week away. 7.30 p.m. We'll hold our first Pray Vote Stand Town Hall meeting at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. I'll be joined by Pastor Gary Hamrick and ADF President and CEO Mike Ferris. Again, that's 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Pray Vote Stand Town Hall, the way forward. Find out more. Go to prayvotestand.org. All right. Yesterday, I played this clip of uh, of Nancy Pelosi uh, talking about the need for greater security at the Capitol and the reasons why. Today, when I meet with General Honore, uh, he is looking at members here, members at home and in between. So we want to have a scientific uh, approach to how uh, we protect members. I do believe, and I have said this all along, that we will probably need a supplemental uh, for uh, more security for members when the enemy is within the House of Representatives, uh, a, a threat that members are concerned about in addition to what is happening outside. I'll show you the true hypocrisy of that statement later, but for now I want to talk about the left's newfound love for security, something that was totally void last summer when cities across America were smoldering. Let me bring in Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, who has been consistent in his call for law and order. Senator Cotton serves on the Intelligence Committee in the Senate and the Armed Services Committee as well. Senator Cotton, welcome back to the program. 
Hey, Tony, it's great to be back on with you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Now, I, I want to say at the outset, you've been consistent about this. You called upon the president to use uh, the National Guard, if necessary, last summer when there was rioting in the District of Columbia, rioting across the country. And and you said in the wake of the events on January the 6th that order, law and order needed to be established and we needed to use whatever means necessary to accomplish that. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, Tony, that's a totally accurate assessment. Uh, and I think it's pretty straightforward and it's shared by the vast majority of Americans. As I said last summer, as I said last month, no quarter for insurrection, violence, chaos, and disorder, that we have to use law enforcement and, if necessary, the National Guard and federal troops to restore order and to stop chaos and violence wherever it happens, no matter what political slogans a mob chants. That was true last summer when they were burning down small businesses and tearing down statues of venerable Americans like George Washington and U.S. Grant. It was true on January 6th. Um, now, I, I wrote an op-ed to that effect in the New York Times. It caused their newsroom to go into meltdown. Um, people lost their jobs there over it. Um, I, I'm somewhat bemused over the last month on how many of those liberals who decried my op-ed at the time have now joined me on team send in the troops whenever it's necessary to restore order and to stop the violence. So now, I'm, the not, flip side of it, I'm not the only one that sees that. No, no, it's a, it's a, I've been sitting back in, in bemused observation. Um, but it's better late than never. Um, the principle should be, though, is that we, in a civilized society like ours, we can have no tolerance for mob violence, for disorder, for chaos, no matter what slogans a mob chants, no matter what signs they carry. Now, the flip side of that, Tony, is we shouldn't have an overwhelming presence of law enforcement and the military when there is not a threat of violence. So what happened on January 6th is a result in no small part of poor planning and coordination by the leadership of the Capitol Hill Security Forces. The two sergeants of arms and the uh, Capitol Hill uh, police chief have resigned, rightly so. Uh, as we review more what happened, that accountability may have to go further into leadership. The, the officers on the front lines uh, behaved heroically. Um, in many cases, tragically, one lost their life in it. Yeah. Um, but they were not—they were not fully prepared. They didn't have the equipment they needed. It appeared to me, look at the videos, they had not been fully briefed on rules of engagement. They certainly didn't have the kind of physical barriers that were necessary to be in place. But in, in so, their defense, as a as a former police officer, and just kind of you know, I'm I'm conscious conscious of uh, security issues. I, I worked in anti-terrorism, and and although that's not my field anymore, you know, you, you still have a little bit of that ingrained. Quite frankly, I, I think this was a surprise to so many people. I mean, we live here in America, we have protests, and yes, we do have the rioting and stuff that goes on, but the respect for the capital of the United States and what it represents, it was shocking to me. Yeah, it, it was shocking. It's it a uh, ter terrible day, um, and, and I understand that some of those security leaders uh, were concerned about visuals or optics, to use the terms I've heard. Yeah. And I can understand that. Um, however, it's a much worse physical, visual to have the guy wearing the Viking hat yes. sitting in the yes. Senate dais yeah. than to have a large troop presence and police yeah. presence outside I, the Capitol, yeah. or what we've had in the last month. Um, but look, my point now has been that the inauguration has passed. We're going back to the normal business of the Congress. Um, I'm not aware, still to this day, of specific incredible threats about any kind of major threat to the Capitol. 
we don't need to have razor wire fences around the Capitol permanently. We don't need to install new physical barriers. We don't need 7,000 National Guardsmen here. I have consulted with the senior Pentagon leaders who were involved in the immediate reaction on January 6th. It is, it is completely feasible in a matter of mere hours to reinstall that anti-riot fencing, to have better coordination with specialized law enforcement agencies in the Capitol, like the FBI, like the Park Police, to have better coordination with the local National Guard in Washington, Virginia, and Maryland, to have a personnel surge and to have temporary obstacles placed if there's ever another threat. Right. You know, we already do those things and things like right. the State of the Union or a joint session address. That's what we should be doing now and in the future. We shouldn't turn the Capitol into an armed fortress or an armed camp. Right. Absolutely. Because intelligence will tell you if, if there's a higher level of threat and, and if additional troops or additional manpower is needed. But I want to go, you, you brought something else about the temporary fencing. Another example of the double standard by the left. Remember, I mentioned this a, a few moments ago in my introduction when President Trump put the uh, temporary fence around the White House property during last summer's yeah. rioting. The left went crazy. And, of course, the, the press across the board celebrated it when it came down, saying Trump was simply trying to hide behind a fence from the, his critics. Um, it, 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 the, the, there is no end to the hypocrisy of the left from, from my vantage, from, from what I see. But let me ask you this, you, this new love for security, is it only because this provides a platform for political theater pointing to uh, conservative thought or those on the right? Well, first off, Tony, uh, you're right about the double standard hypocrisy. Continuing to this day, the people who are saying that the National Guard needs to be out in force in thousands in the Capitol indefinitely are turning a blind eye to the violence that continues in places like Portland by Antifa. Um, and that leads to your second point, which is there is certainly a concerted effort, in my opinion, by the Democrats, by liberals in the media, to try to leverage a small element of right-wing extremists' rhetoric or actions against mainstream center-right conservatives that you do not, of course, see to, in an effort to leverage left-wing extremist rhetoric and action against mainstream center-left Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just a fact if you look at the news coverage of what happened on the Capitol on January 6th. Um, or some of the more kind of egregious statements by some fringe elements who consider themselves to be on the right versus the violence you see by Antifa over the last six to eight months and extreme statements by those who consider themselves to be on the far left. Well, or, uh, or even even, you know, those that, well, I don't know if you will call the, the vice president of the United States on the far left or not, but she was a part and you tweeted this out back during the summer where she was a part of raising money to bail out those individuals who had been burning down yeah. cities. Let's just let's just say that if Mike Pence had been uh, raising money to bail out people uh, who were arrested after the January 6th violence at the Capitol, I think it yeah. would have been a slightly different different story and covered slightly differently by the media than when Kamala Harris was raising money uh, for um, mob rioters in Minneapolis. Yeah, 
uh, again, that double standard. We're going to run out of time here, Senator uh, Cotton, and I, I want to move on to a couple of other things because a $2 trillion, almost 1.9, I shouldn't exaggerate, uh, almost $2 trillion, another relief package being proposed by the Biden administration. Looked like a little window dressing yesterday when uh, 10 Republican senators met with the Biden administration, or with the president, I should say. Um, but it looks like they're going to move forward with uh, their uh, objective of a huge, huge uh, virus relief bill. Um, I think they are counting. I wouldn't even call it a virus relief bill. I just call it a wish list for liberals that long predated um, the coronavirus. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad that those 10 Republicans went to meet with Joe Biden to make it clear that Republicans are ready to cooperate to get more targeted coronavirus relief. Look, we passed multiple bills last year with broad bipartisan support, in many cases with unanimous support, Tony. Yeah. And if the money that is still not not spent from the big March bill, the money that is just barely being spent from the December bill, is proven to be not enough for things like vaccine production and distribution or keeping schools open in places like Arkansas and finally getting schools open again in places like Chicago, we're willing to listen to that. We're willing to listen to the case for more unemployment uh, insurance for people who are still out of work, in many cases because Democratic governors won't let them go back to work. What we're not willing to do is to spend $2 trillion on unrelated liberal priorities. Well, bailing out blue cities that are mismanaged. Absolutely. So I'm glad those Republicans went to meet with uh, President Biden, but but it's just another example of where it appears that you know Biden wanted to campaign as a centrist and a unifier, and he spoke about that in his inaugural, but he's governing from the hard left. Without question, we saw that last week in all of the executive orders that came flying out of the Oval Office. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton, as always, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Tony. All right, Senator Tom Cotton, consistent in his viewpoints which I appreciate. Something we don't see, especially on the other side. All right, speaking of uh, politics, we're going to be talking next about the 2020 census and what that could mean for redistricting in the 2022 congressional elections. David Wasserman with the Cook Political Report is here next. Don't go away. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I-, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. 
Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Glad to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. We've talked about this um, actually a fair amount because every 10 years we have a census. And based on that census, there's a lot of things that happen. Allocation of money kind of per capita to different states for different projects. Uh, But also it has political implications because this is how representation in Congress is decided. And then state legislatures get to redraw the political lines for state legislative seats, for congressional seats, based upon population shifts. So right now, Democrats hold their narrowest House margin uh, majority since uh, the 1930s. So, I mean, I think we're less than 10 seats. So what happens in the in this year going into next year when we have the 2022 elections could uh, be significantly impacted by the redrawing of these political lines based upon the census. So joining me to talk about this is a man who is an expert on this topic, David Wasserman. He is the house editor of the Cook Political Report, which is usually very accurate when it comes to gauging political moves in the country. David, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, you've written a, a, a really interesting article, Overviewing Redistricting. Now, in years past, uh, this would only be for uh, those of us who were you know, deep into this stuff that would read it. But there's a lot more interest these days in political redistricting. Why is that? Well, it really has exploded in public consciousness in the last 10 years. And I think the Republican dominance over the process in 2011, the last time we went through this, uh, caused Democrats to perk up. The Democrats were largely blindsided 
by how well Republicans did in redrawing the boundaries in their favor because Republicans, uh, if you recall, uh, took back the House in 2010. They also had a banner uh, year in state legislatures as a reaction to Obama's first two years. And so they gained control over the process in a lot of states. Keep in mind that in about two-thirds of states, the state legislature has primary authority to redraw district boundaries for the next 10 years. And uh, although Republicans did lose control of the House in 2018, uh, part of that was that Democrats had been successful in suing to overturn Republican-drawn maps in a couple of states. And had it not been for those lawsuits that Democrats launched, then Republicans would probably have won the majority in 2020. So with a very thin majority in the House, this redistricting process could could tip control either way. Brings up a really interesting point. Um, where do we stand today when it when we look at a legislative control in terms of party? Do the Republicans control a majority of the parties that will be able to influence the uh, outcome of these districts? So when you count up the seats that both parties will be able to draw, Republicans are going to have a final authority in uh, 188 districts out of the 435 in the House. That includes some pretty big states, uh, Texas, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia. Uh, those four states alone are poised to gain four seats from the reapportionment process, which is essentially when the census reallocates uh, congressional seats and electoral votes according to the latest population tallies. And so uh, Democrats only have uh, the final authority in 73 districts. Now, you might be wondering where where are the rest of those districts and, and who draws the rest of them? Well, a number of states have bipartisan or independent commissions that govern the process, and that includes California, Washington State, uh, Virginia, Michigan and Colorado have new commissions in place for this cycle that were passed by ballot initiatives. And then there are some states, including Louisiana, where control over redistricting is split, uh, where there may be a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature or vice versa. Right. And so in those cases, the, the process could lead to a stalemate and you could have a court intervene to draw its own map. It's an awkward position for, for judges. But it's not unprecedented. Well, that, that's my next point, uh, is the role of the courts, because, as you pointed out, the Democrats used that successfully going into 2018. Eric Holder kind of the uh, leading the effort for Democrats, and this appears to be a part of their strategy for 2022 because of the uh, kind of the coronavirus, some of the late reporting. It gives them opening to do some things. Will they find the courts as favorable this time as they did last time? It's a great question. And uh, in 2019, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, partisan gerrymandering claims could not be adjudicated in uh, federal courts. Essentially, the Supreme Court said, look, uh, it's like trying to define obscenity. It's really hard to know when a party is going too far. So uh, this is an issue that 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 courts just can't apply a fair standard for. And so uh, Democrats are trying to sue at the state level um, that partisan gerrymandering should should be banned. Uh, and of course, it, it's really varied by state. In Pennsylvania and North Carolina, Democrats were successful 
in throwing out Republican maps, in part because Democrats had succeeded in gaining majorities on state Supreme Court. And so uh, this has become, you know, a, a partisan one-upsmanship, even in the legal sphere at the state level. And then there are, there are uh, places where Democrats will attempt to sue uh, o- over Voting Rights Act claims and claim that uh, racial gerrymandering uh, uh, is, is present. And so I, I think in the Deep South, including Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, perhaps South Carolina, you'll see Democrats try to claim that Republicans have packed African-American voters into a single district and try and make the case those districts should be unpacked so that there are multiple opportunity districts for minorities. Yeah, and that's a whole other conversation because it affects conservatives the same way because they end up consolidating conservatives into particular districts um, as well. Um, David, we're, we're out of time, but very quickly, uh, you kind of say the, J, the, the GOP has the opportunity to pick up anywhere from zero to ten seats based upon this process. That's right, and they only need to gain five seats for control of the House. So <laughs> there you have it. Redistricting alone makes the House a toss-up. All right, David Wasserman, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, great to talk with you, and we'll do it again. All right, thanks, Tony. All right, folks, uh, don't go away. I'm going to have a conversation next about, uh, well, the hypocrisy that we see on the left. Don't go away. We're back with more after this. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, i definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download, or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back. 
to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host, the website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, as promised, I, I want to address uh, AOC and her comments. Last night she did this uh, extensive uh, live social media post about uh, why she was uh, traumatized by the January 6th um, event at the Capitol, the riot. Now, I, I think she's obviously so focused on herself, and but, but her, her babbling nonsense has to end. Here is, uh, here in part is, is what, I mean, this thing was like an hour or so long, but, but she is on this kick, again, that Josh Hawley, uh, Ted Cruz, and others are responsible for these, uh, you know, lawless people who rioted at the Capitol. Uh, so here, here's a clip of what she had to say last night. They have doubled down, and they said I did the right thing. And if I could go back, I would do it all over again. So that tells me that these people remain a present danger. Because what that tells me is that when given another window of political opportunity for themselves, even if they know that it means that it will endanger their colleagues, they will do it again. And that's the real reason why I think that Senator Josh Hawley needs to resign, why Senator Ted Cruz needs to resign, along with many others, because they will do it again. What will they do again? Well, they will uphold their constitutional duty, as they did when they questioned the results of certain states that did not conduct their elections according to their own laws. So I hope that Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and the others would do the same thing again. Uh, and this snowflake um, would, would just grow up. Now, to put this in context, let me play you a couple of clips from the past. As if, and I want to tie in what I played earlier from Nancy Pelosi last week, saying that, you know, we need all this massive security, additional spending, you know, the 10-foot fence around the Capitol. Because the enemy is within and some of our members don't feel safe. Okay. All right, Nancy Pelosi. Here's a blast from the past. And I mean a real blast. Maxine Waters. And so let's save the cause. Let's make sure we show up wherever we have to show up. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant... In a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd. And you push back on them. And you tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere. Now, that was back in June of 2018 when uh, she had this uh, this crowd in Los Angeles, I think it was, and she was uh, going on and on about getting up in the faces of Trump supporters, uh, Trump administration officials. And remember? Remember? There was this rash of uh, experiences in restaurants. Ted Cruz was one of them. I think uh, Kellyanne Conway was one. There was a, a whole host, a whole list of them. They were out um, at restaurants, and people would come up and get in their face and, uh, and intimidate them. And there was uh, real security concerns around that. Uh, where was Nancy Pelosi then? And, and now, to be fair, Maxine was not the only one. Uh, here's another 
blast from the past. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. Now, we didn't have to go as far back in the past for that one. That was uh, now the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer talking about Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, um, that they would pay the price for uh, this was at a pro-abortion rally out front uh, out in front of the Supreme Court in March of last year. Pay the price. Memory. There was a lot of conservatives that raised the question. What did you mean by that? Pay the price. There's a double standard here, folks. What is happening, and we talked about this earlier with Senator Cotton, the left is trying to leverage what happened on the 6th of January by some yahoos that uh, do not represent conservatives, do not represent Christians, do not represent the patriots who love this country and have been willing to defend it at all. These people should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. But the rest of us, we should not have our rights infringed upon and we should have not, we should not, not, under no circumstance, allow the left to intimidate us into silence. We must continue to stand firm, speak truth, truth to those who are in power today and those who will be in power tomorrow. This is our country, and we will not, we will not shrink back in silence. We cannot allow them to intimidate us. All right. Coming up next, we're going to talk about Black History Month and the focus being on the family. That's something we can talk about. And talk about it, we will, with my good friend Ken Blackwell, former mayor of Cincinnati. He joins me next for that conversation. Don't go away. You're listening to Washington Watch. Trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, 
a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Tony Perkins, your host, so good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, yesterday with uh, Joy Pullman, we, uh, we talked about this initiative in a school, school district in Ames, Iowa, called Black Lives Matter Week of Action. You know, it is Black History Month, and that's what we're going to be talking about, but in this particular case, there were uh, 13 topics or principles that were going to be discussed in this week of action. Restorative justice, empathy, loving engagement, diversity. Yeah, I'm with you on all that. Then we get down to globalism. Not quite sure where that fits in. Then queer affirming, trans affirming, collective value. Not sure what that means. Intergenerational black families Black villages, unapologetically black and black women. Now, of course, parents are pushing back on that, and we talked about the, the demographics of that district and what this was designed to do. All right? I want to talk about the black family. That is actually the theme for Black History Month. Now, a little history here on uh, Black History Month. Uh, this goes back, actually to uh, President Gerald Ford, who in, uh, I believe it was 1976, was the, the first president to, uh, to declare Black History Month. Prior to that was Black History Week, and uh, they, they focus a little bit on it. It goes back, I think, to the mid-1920s. But it was a Republican president that said, hey, let's celebrate Black History Month and the contributions that, the, uh, that black Americans have made to this country. All right. Setting the stage for our discussion, 
on the issue of the black family. In uh, 1965, um, former U.S. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan issued a report known as the, it became known as the Monahan, uh, Moynihan Report. And it examined the link between black poverty and family structure. Now, when Moynihan wrote this back in 1970, or 1965, on the, he was using this as a warning of what was coming because of the disintegration of the family, uh, the destruction of the black family. The out-of-wedlock out birth rate at that time was 25% among blacks. In 1991, uh, 68% of children were born out of wedlock. Now, it's, it's tapered off. It's, it's, it hasn't grown at such a rapid rate. It now, I think the latest number is about 70%. But that was, in, in many ways, a forecast of what was happening more broadly in our culture. So I think we're right to focus on the black family. And I celebrate that in terms of looking at Black History Month. And here to talk about that uh, with me is uh, Ken Blackwell, former mayor of Cincinnati, also secretary of state and treasurer for the Buckeye State. He is now senior fellow for human rights and constitutional governance here at the Family Research Council. Ken Blackwell, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tony. Good to be with you. So um, you've seen this progression in the... Um, and, and the black family. And I, I, I think you would agree with me that it's, it's appropriate, as we look at Black History Month, to focus on the family. But we need to do so in such a way as we address what's leading to the breakdown of the family and the consequences of that breakdown. Absolutely, Tony. And if you would go back a little further than where you started and you go to the late 50s, early 60s, black and intact families were running parallel with white intact families. Mm -hmm. It was only in the mid-60s with the creation of the Great Society program that gave rise to uh, the, the trends that Moynihan talked about. Uh, Moynihan w was essentially saying that we're creating a system that actually rewards the family breakdown as opposed to the family struggling together. And if you think about the black experience in America, uh, and let's just start in 244 years ago, uh, when there still was the institution of slavery, one of the things that helped move the black community forward was a great sense of family. And so, uh, again, fast forward to the day when you have Black Lives Matter and other radical groups uh, that have Marxist leanings, they're talking about the irrelevance of the family uh, because these folks follow a status model. And as opposed to the family being the incubator of liberty uh, and and the, the way that young people are uh, brought into the culture, uh, they are talking about expanded roles of the state uh, and the destruction of the family. So it's, 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 it's really crazy uh, that, you know, the, the left now in all of their curricula are, are talking about focusing on the family at a time when the forces within uh, their, their community uh, and, and, and their movement are talking about the destruction of the family or the irrelevance of the family. That, that's what grabbed me about the theme. 
is that given what has taken place that is, I think, accelerating the deconstruction of the family, that they would focus on the family. So I'm curious as to what is their focus when they talk about the family. I know I just mentioned uh, the Black Lives Matter Week of Action. Part of their discussion are black villages, and I've read where some say, look, um, you know, the family structure doesn't really matter. It's all about the kids, whether you do that as a community, a village, uh, or whoever wants to be a part of the family. So even in their messaging, there's a deconstruction of the traditional family where you have a mother and a father uh, in a lifelong relationship raising their children to become the next generation of leaders. Absolutely, Tony. And look, if you go back and you look at Mao's playbook, that's exactly what he believed, that the state could do a better job of enculturating uh, and bringing uh, up the next generation than the family and and again if you if you believe in limited government if you believe in putting a restraint on the reach and power of government you understand that individual liberty actually has a direct collection uh, connection to uh, the, the the family uh, and so our whole system of government is based on elevating liberty since Socrates as you and I have talked about before, there's been studies between the dynamic between the organized power of the state and individual liberty. The more muscular, the more powerful the organized state is, the less individual liberty. The more individual liberty, uh, the, the, the more that you put restraints on the reach and power of government. That's why, you know, what has made us an exceptional nation is that we believe that our rights are not grants from government. They're gifts from God. Uh, and, 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 and the left, whether it's Mao, whether it's Marx, or whether it's AOC, they tend to believe that they know better, that the state is all-powerful, and the state, as the granters of human rights, not God, can, in fact, do a better job of regulating and and bringing into regiment uh, individuals. And in, in their worldview, they see parents or a parent little more than a caretaker to follow out their direction for the, uh, the children. Well, I, I, absolutely, Tony. Look, and it all starts, if you, if you take a look at the left, they believe that since 1619, America has been an irreparably racist society that you can't fix it. The only thing that you can do is destroy it and start all over again. They, in fact, don't believe in the miracle of 1776 when, in fact, we put a real premium on individual liberty. But not only that, we, in fact, understood that behavior can be shaped by individuals taking on responsibility for their, their actions. And in the early development of individuals, it is the family that gives guidance uh, and, 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 and frameworks for behavior. 
to the younger generation. So let's talk a little bit about this in terms of a way forward, pushing back against the narrative of less. Let's let's take a uh, a, a political, cultural, jujitsu move, if you will. <laughs> they want to talk about family, so let's talk about the family. I mean, you're an example of this. Ben Carson is an example. As I can point to so many people, um, uh, my uh, late friend, your friend as well, Bishop Harry Jackson, also <laughs> from Cincinnati. Um, how do families, given the cultural and political landscape of today, how do they start rebuilding the family? Let's talk about the black family in the black community that you're very familiar with. How do we begin that process of rebuilding? Well, we, we first by underscoring the importance of the family. And I, I, know, I know I repeat myself, but the family... And it was that, in my experience, you know, and 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 in Ben and his mother's experience, it is the family that provides values. It is the family that helps develop not only uh, the work ethic, but the sense of uh, individual responsibility and, and belongingness uh, so, too. Right, and, and and so the the, the you know, look. I, I, I tell this, this 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 story that my <clears throat> my my dad uh, worked. Uh, he was a he was first a meat packer and he became a meat inspector. But early on in, in my life and his career, he he worked you know twelve hour days if not longer. Uh, and and so he used to just leave my brother and 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 me notes uh, by our nightstand, you know, and it would just be motivational notes. Uh, but he understood that by making that connection, by making sure that we worship together, that we that we that, that we chose the path of conviction over the path of you know convenience, that that he was he was fulfilling a God-given role as the father uh, of, of 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 children, and he he worshipped my mother. Uh, and together they had a they had a partnership, and we were able to, in fact, understand within the cultural context the roles of men and women in moving our country forward and providing for their family unit. It, it it's is the example setting yeah. that is so important. It, That's how young people learn. And when you talk about the great society and the surrogate role that the 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 state plays. Um, Parents, parent, a parent, parents may may tend to think, well, maybe the state can do a better job than me, and so I'm just going to back out and kind of let them take care of it. And, and so there's a crowding out of parental responsibility uh, in a turning over to to the state, and we've seen now how that works. It doesn't. It doesn't, Tony. And you just underscored that word again: responsibility. You know, and 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 the left look, they they play a a, a zero sum game. Uh, you know, the, the whole notion of e pluribus unum, from the many one, means that we're united around some basic principles and, and, and values. And yes, we, we are not all the same size, we're not all of the same income or the, the same coloration to our skin, uh, but we all are, have been invested with human dignity, uh, and it is, it, it is, you know, the, the responsibility of us to understand that respect discovers the dignity in others. Uh, and, and, and so families help to do that. And, it, and it's the connectedness. You know, 
my mom and you know was a stay-at-home mom for a lot of her uh, uh, my my uh, early childhood and she was up at the school the school was in uh, the neighborhood you know the my my family uh, as church uh, associates and members and church community they were all party there was a connectedness right and what has happened is that we've disconnected these community family building institutions right. they give us commonality and and we the left is now trying to play a zero sum game somebody wins somebody loses and their whole redistribution model leads them to talk about equity and then that means there is a struggle of who gets to sit at the table and who doesn't. They don't talk about equal opportunity. They don't talk about growing uh, the, 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 the pie. They have these boneheaded notions of shrinking our economic potential to, to grow and to create opportunities and to break down barriers that deny people the opportunity to work to the, their level of a of ability and, and, and achievement. And, and that's what has made us different. And this model of allowing the state to to be the surrogate parent and usurp the role of the parents has led to, uh, you know, mediocre results. And it is in sharp contrast to the exceptional nation that America has been and the opportunities that it still provides to people who have a sense of belonging and have that basic understanding of responsibility we talked about that can come from no place else other than the family. The, the family. And we cannot be gaslighted into thinking that we are wrong on that. You know, we, in fact, we, you know, I, as, as you are, they can blacklist me. They can, they can talk about deprogramming me. Uh, they can talk about re-educating me. But what they better know is that they're in a fight. That's right. That's right. And we're going to have to leave it there. Ken Blackwell, we're out of time. As always, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us as we take a look at uh, Black History Month focused on the family. Ken Blackwell, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Tony. And folks, thank you for being with us as well. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means. Keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.